seated. Thanks, Rowan. Well, welcome to Ridgetop. We're a church plant. I don't know if you noticed. Um, we've just been doing this for a few months. Uh, we started in August. Our, I think our first Sunday was August 28th. And we were talking a little bit in the prayer time earlier, how do we think it's going? And um, I think there's a lot of reasons to say it's going well. And one of those is that we are, as a church, um, we are seeking to be Christ-centered. And one of the ways that we're doing that is when we gather on Sunday. And so I'm really grateful for Noah and his ministry to us in music because he's helping us sing of Christ. And then I'm doing my best to preach Christ. And then we'll see Christ in a few minutes as we break the bread and take the cup. And, and so as we gather week after week after week, that is just growing our roots deeper and deeper and deeper into Christ, who He is, what He's done. Um, and that is the main thing. And there, and there are certainly other things that uh, we'll talk about as we go, but that is, that's the main thing. And I feel like that is happening. Um, so we're looking at Matthew 5. And uh, if, if you haven't found that yet in, in either your, your Bible or your phone or that little black Bible on the uh, chair there, I want to encourage you to, to find that, Matthew 5. And we've been calling this uh, Becoming Human. And uh, the, the first and foremost thing for becoming fully human is to be reconciled with the God who made you. Um, this is, this is what is going to set off the rest of what it means to become human. And we've said this each week, uh, that the, the health of your humanness is really a, directly connected to, your, to the health of your connection to God. And so this is, this is sort of, you can think about the upward uh, movement of your humanness. But that then works itself out in the inward life of the human and the outward life of the human. And I think those three movements really, they help us uh, understand better the, the teaching of Jesus in this section because he is, he's moving upward, inward, outward, and he's doing this flawlessly. I mean, you, you hardly even notice uh, that he's doing this, but, but he, he is doing this. And, um, and so today we look at uh, some of his teaching on the inward and the outward, but it's always in light of um, the upward. And uh, this is something that he sums up uh, when he's discussing uh, what he calls the great commandment. And I think other religious leaders uh, were saying that same thing because they asked him about it. And uh, one example is from Matthew, Matthew 22. And uh, so one of the religious leaders, uh, one of them, a, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the, quote, law and the prophets, which is his code there for the entire Old Testament. So you see him doing this, God and self and others, in his little summary statement of the great commandment. Um, and in this passage today, which is a really tough passage, I appreciate Rowan reading that. Um, it's a tough passage, but he really gets at the nitty gritty of the up and the in and the out. And I think this is, this is a profound 
uh, in particular uh, to, of the, these topics, but also as an illustration of what Jesus is talking about in regard to the comprehensive transformation of us as human beings, the upward, the inward, and the outward. So he starts with the outward action of murder. He moves to the inward action of anger. Then he talks about the outward action of adultery. And he moves to the inward uh, reality of lust. And uh, so let's take a look. Matthew 5.21, you heard it said that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. I'm sure his original hearers were like, thumbs up. Like that, that makes sense. Murder's bad. Murder is prohibited <laughs> by God's word. And um, it's hard to find humans on the planet that think at least murder of their own group is, is okay. I mean, they might think other groups, you can murder them. They're, that's all right. But, but for their own group, murder is not okay. There's just a sense as image bearers that you ought not be killing each other. And you really can't have a society if you are killing each other. Um, and so this is such a kind of no-brainer statement. Um, and it's interesting that, that murder is like the first indication in the book of Genesis that sin is starting to take root in human beings. So you have the murder of, of Cain killing Abel in the early chapters of Genesis. As sin proliferates to the point where God judges the earth and sends a flood in judgment, um, he then, after that, makes a covenant with Noah, and that covenant includes discussion about not murdering. Uh, Genesis 9, verse 5 through 7, uh, God's saying this to Noah, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. For ev from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So God, this is like one of his first commandments. Right? This is before the Ten Commandments. This is before Moses. And he's saying, don't kill. And if you do kill, there's serious consequences. And the reason being is because people are image bearers of God. They have a dignity, they have a worth that's not, it's, it's unlike any other creation, right? And so because human beings are the image bearers of God, no matter who they are, you can't murder them. Murder is prohibited. This is then, you know, reestablished in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. So it's very obvious that when Jesus says, uh, you guys have heard it said, don't murder, everyone's on that page. But in verse 22, he says, but I say to you, I'm wondering if there was a gasp in the, in the crowd at that moment. Because he's talking as if he has equal authority to the Ten Commandments that were spoken by God. And in fact, he does have equal authority <laughs> because he is God. And he's declaring this in a not-so-subtle way, that he's about to, to say some things that are the Word of God. So he's like, you've heard it said, but I say. And here's what he says. 
that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So he moves from this outward behavior of murder, which is bad, to the inward behavior of anger. And we'll talk more about what he also is adding to that. Um, This is partly what he's getting at. If you remember last week, if you were here, where he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Partly what he's saying there is that his standard of righteousness is not just outward actions. It's also the inward condition. I mean, that is like, don't murder to, don't be angry with your brother. Like, whoa, that's, that's a raising of the bar. That is a stunning raising of the bar. And he's letting us know that sin is not just out here, but it's in here. And that the root of murder is anger, right? Or and we'll talk about this in, in a minute. The, the not just don't be angry, but don't insult. And the, the actual Aramaic there is don't call them, uh, uh, if you call them raka. And raka, it basically means you idiot, you moron, which is a way to sort of di- dismiss and dehumanize a person. Again, it goes back to this, humans are image bearers of God. And anything that dehumanizes them is a sin against God. I, I think you can make an argument that this dismissing and de- dehumanizing, this is worse than anger. Uh, anger at some level is showing respect to the human being that you're angry with. You're saying, you matter enough to me to make me angry. As opposed to, you're just an idiot. You're just a moron. Of course you did that to me. And we we dismiss them. We, We make them less than us. I think that's worse than I'm angry at you. Um, Jesus is describing really less violent versions of murder. Um, murder is the ultimate dehumanization. Think about that, right? Um, there's no more overt way to declare that you are less than me than, by, than killing you. It is the ultimate dehumanization. Um, Now, do people act in ways that hurt us and that make us angry? Absolutely. Jesus is not saying you should never be angry. And I think some Christians take this passage to mean that. And so they kind of fake it till they make it, you know? Like, I'm not angry. And they stuff it. And, but it's a natural kind of a, you know, it's a natural emotion of being a human being. And so what I find myself tempted to do is instead of allowing myself to, to, to acknowledge I'm really angry at this person, I go the dismissive route because that feels religiously acceptable. I'm a pastor. Pastors don't get angry, right? And so 
by dismissing someone, I am dealing with that anger and I'm doing it in a way that's even worse than saying, you know what, they made me mad. That would be healthier. <laughs> and people are going to make us mad. Uh, people are going to lash out at us. People are going to hurt our feelings. There are going to be misunderstandings. There's, gonna, there's a whole host of reasons why we get into situations in relationships where we get angry. And what we don't want to do is shift into dehumanizing them, dismissing them, thinking of them as less than to deal with that anger that we have. We don't want to be saying things like, these people, right? Or they just don't get it. What we're really saying is we're mad. <laughs> we're mad. We're upset with the folks that we are saying those things about. And again, this dehumanization internally is the seed of murder. So, okay, if anger is a natural emotion, what are we supposed to do with it? Jesus actually gives some examples here. Um, and so he doesn't just leave us with a slap on the wrist, like, don't be angry. Um, as a good disciple maker, he gives us two examples. And one of them is inside the church and one of them is outside the church. Um, so in the church, he says in verse 23, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So he describes a situation where you're in a worship service. Um, you're being a good Christian. You're coming to church. You're even going to give a generous donation. Right? And as you're doing that in this public setting, which is religious people's, this is our favorite place to be in a religious public setting <laughs> because we can do religious things and people can go, oh, you're amazing. Right? And he, thought he describes this person giving this offering in this public setting and then remembering that someone has something against them. And he's like, you, you should put your offering down and leave the public worship service and you should go to the brother. Now, brother, that's code for your fellow Christian. It's not just any human. It's your fellow Christians, especially those that are inside your local church, that you are responsible to move toward them in reconciliation. And notice that he's saying that this is a person who's angry with you. Now, I want you to think about this. We move from murder to don't be angry and dismissive to let's reconcile people who are angry with us. <laughs> he doesn't even say who, is, who are rightfully angry at us. He's just saying they're upset with you. And he's saying move toward that person, that fellow Christian, in reconciliation. This is becoming human. This is becoming fully human. From, well, I never murdered anybody, to I'm dealing with my anger and dismissive attitudes, to I am moving toward people in reconciliation. Right? And um, this is also talked about in Matthew when the other is true, when someone else has hurt you. And so in Matthew 18, 
we get sort of the flip side. Matthew 18, uh, verse 15, if your brother, there's that code again, it's Christians in the church, sins against you, so that person's hurt you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus is so insistent on reconciliation of relationships in the church. And in this situation, you've been hurt. Now, notice he's saying, he's not saying, be a doormat for Jesus, right? Like, oh, they hurt me. Oh, I'm just going to stuff it. Oh, you know, grace, grace over that. I'm not going to have a conversation with it. That's not healthy. But actually going to the person and saying, I was hurt, right? Which is the beginning of anger. <laughs> you get hurt and then you get angry. And so moving toward that person who's hurt you in, uh, in reconciliation and then he's, he gives you kind of a script to do it, where he says, you know, if that person is like, I didn't hurt you, you know, get over it. What's wrong with you? You go get another person, right? Not, not like tell the whole church, but get one or two others. Hey, could you come and have a conversation with me? Now, that also protects the accused, because sometimes people are like, you do this thing, you hurt, and they're actually not seeing the situation correctly. And so if they can't get anyone else to, to confirm, yeah, that was a hurtful thing. Let's go talk to them. It protects the accused. All right? So this, this is really brilliant, <laughs> what Jesus is describing here. But if one or two others are like, yeah, that hurt, and that does need to get dealt with, and then two or three go and talk to the person. And then if that person is like, I didn't hurt you, I don't, I'm not going to acknowledge that, then the church, right? And, and this is, we actually talked about this in membership, that there has to be some way to designate who is the local church and the need for some kind of membership to, to designate who's part of that local body. That would actually also, they would hear the, the, the charge. And then the church would plead with the person, right? And say, come on, let's, let's reconcile, let's acknowledge this, let's, and, and then after all that has been done, which is a long process, okay, this is not like two-day thing, this is a long, this is a long process, that the church would then say, um, we're actually going to revoke your membership, <laughs> not because we want to be mean or, or we want to kick you out, we're not shunning you, you know, this is not like an Amish shunning, uh, it's like we're in relationship with you, but we do want to declare that you are outside the membership and we want you to repent and come back in. That is a lot of work. That, that's a lot of effort to reconcile relationships in the church. Um, why would Jesus be so insistent <laughs> on that? Because this is what God did for us. God moved toward us in the grace of the gospel. And he made a way for us to be reconciled with him. And, and we, were, we're, we were not eager participants. <laughs> we were rebelling against him. And he moved toward us in grace and truth. Again, grace and truth. Like He called us out on our sin. 
but he offered grace of reconciliation. And because that is our gospel, if we're going to live that gospel out as a church, we need to live out the ministry of reconciliation with each other. So it is a way to preach the gospel to the world and to each other by moving toward one another in reconciliation. Um, This is hard. This is the hardest thing I've ever tried to live out. And sometimes when you move toward people, they're not interested in reconciliation. And so it, it, it's hard. But there's, there's no doubt this is what Jesus wants for his church. Now, when it works, it's really sweet. Because relationships that were once distant and kind of pretend relationships are now truly reconciled. And you're back in relationship with each other. And it reflects the gospel. Now, he doesn't just give an example in the church. He also gives an example outside of the church in the world. Verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So here he's not talking about the brother. He's talking about the accuser, right? Uh, the plaintiff in a legal situation. So someone is suing you and instead of merely lawyering up and trying to self-protect, you're actually moving toward the person. And this person is outside of the church. Um, Your first priority isn't to try and keep as many resources as you can uh, in your pocket or to save face, but it's actually... Uh, to see this person reconciled to you and hopefully see the reconciliation of the gospel. Jesus says this can actually bear some immediate fruit, that in doing this, you can sometimes settle out of court and you don't have to go to a judge and go to jail and (laughs) pay down to the last penny. Now, this does not mean that you should never hold anyone accountable for their illegal actions. Sometimes legal action is absolutely appropriate and actually helpful because you're confronting someone with their sin, which gives them an opportunity to move toward God and receive forgiveness. But even then, even when it's appropriate for legal action, we're still, as best we can, moving toward them relationally in reconciliation. The the legal system is built on an adversarial kind of framework. And this is not describing an adversarial framework. It's describing a moving toward people in reconciliation. So, said a lot there, but here's here's a little bit of a summary that might help. So he's calling us to repent, right? He's calling us to repent from angry or dismissive dehumanization of people. And then moving toward rehumanizing reconciliation. This is becoming human. Turning away from angry, dismissive dehumanization of people, moving toward rehumanizing reconciliation, whether it's in the church or in the world. He, he, he says that we're, we're doing that in both settings. Now, second illustration of outward and inward righteousness is the topic of adultery. 
And so he says in verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Same speech pattern. Jesus is a good preacher. He has some repetition and some framework here that he's using. Uh, this might have been, the Sermon on the Mount might have been his traveling sermon. Some, some scholars think this might be, you know, he goes to this again and again and again. Um, and so he, he mentions, you know, seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. Um, and this would have been very clearly understood by the Jewish people, right? This is not a controversial topic. Don't commit adultery, right? And honestly, again, most human beings are like, you should not cheat on your spouse. Like, this is bad, right? And, and, and so the sense of, you've heard it said, um, everyone's like, thumbs up. That's a good rule. We agree. Um, now, what is uh, uh, adultery? So technically, it's uh, when a married person has sex with someone outside of that marriage, someone other than their spouse. The Old Testament biblical pattern uh, regarding sexuality is abstinence before marriage, fidelity in marriage. Over and over and over. Throughout Old Testament, New Testament, this is the pattern uh, for sexuality. And again, his Jewish hearers would have been thumbs up. They would have understood that pattern. Now, this sounds ludicrous to modern ears, right? Abstinence before marriage, fidelity in marriage. As I'm working on this sermon, I'm in Medici on Guad, and I'm hearing what's going on on the table next to me. And the person is declaring themselves polyamorous, saying, I have a husband, but I also have a partner. And I'm working on this sermon, <laughs> And I'm feeling like, whoa, man, I am out of a line with that table over there, right? Um, now, Jesus doubles down on this pattern, and he, he, he goes from the outward uh, sin of adultery, and he goes to the inward sin of lust, verse 28. But I say to you, there's that same verbiage, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, I think there were gasps in the crowd to say that there's some kind of inward adultery that you could commit against God. Um, this, this was just jarring. Um, now, he is, it's interesting, he's going after the men in the way that he says it. Now, this doesn't mean that women don't lust and that women need to repent from lust. They do. And the more sexualized our society become, the more that even becomes an issue. But in his um, context, um, the men were feeling like they were pretty much scot-free from any kind of sexual sin as long as they didn't commit adultery. And we'll talk more about the divorce piece because that was part of their loophole to get out of being adulterers, was just divorcing their wife uh, in any, for any reason that they felt like. And um, most of the purity concerns in the first century were about the women. I have to make sure the women are virgins before they uh, marry a man. And, and Jesus is definitely flipping the script here. And he's looking at those guys and he's saying, you know what, if you're uh, lusting after a woman, um, you're committing adultery. It, it had to be jarring moment when he says this. Um, so what is 
lustful intent. So lust, similar to greed, is a disordered desire, right? Um, you know, is it, is it wrong to desire to have sex? No. That's natural. That's human. That is designed by God. Um, is it wrong to experience sexual attraction to someone as you go through your day? No. No, that, that is going to happen. There, there, are, uh, there are, are, are desires and things that are naturally built into human beings. Um, but allowing that desire to become an objectification of another human for the purpose of giving yourself inward pleasure. Now, that's not okay. And, and so just like in the anger uh, illustration, he's talking about dehumanizing people yet again, right? Treating them as an object, treating them as less than. And, and so this, this lust is a similar kind of illustration um, to the anger illustration. And he's saying this is a sin before a holy God, just as adultery, just as murder, He's saying this, this inward lust, this inward objectification of someone, of using uh, someone for your inward mental sexual pleasure is a sin. It is an inward adultery, and it's against God. Um, healthy sexuality. And we'll be, we'll be talking about this uh, on February 11th when we have our little love for a lifetime and look at the Song of Solomon. Um, healthy sexuality is expressed inside marriage in a mutually like a mutually upbuilding way it's it's not a what can i get from you and what can you get from me it's a, how can i bless my spouse how can i serve my spouse and then how can my spouse bless me how can my spouse uh, serve me and so you're trying to outbless and outserve each other inside Sexual union inside of marriage. That's, that's the design. <laughs> that, again, that is so far from our world right now. But I'm telling you, this is part of becoming human, of the transformation of our understanding of sexuality. as not an objectification of someone. I'm not trying to get something from someone, but a mutual giving inside marriage. This is what the design is uh, for sexuality and God's design. Um, now, at this point, no one's unscathed in that audience, right? None of us are unscathed either. Whether, whether we've been convicted of our dismissing our, our anger or our lust, like everyone in that audience that day was um, feeling the weight of what Jesus was saying regarding sin before a holy God. And you kind of expect Jesus to soften up here, right? Like he's pushed hard on these two topics and he, he's going he's gonna to lay back and he's going to give some grace and give some mercy. He doesn't. He doubles down. And this kind of surprised me as I'm kind of working through the flow of the passage and then I see this next section. I'm like, whoa, this is heavy. <laughs> and so after he talks about the, 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 the anger, talks about the lust, he then says, verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better 
that you lose one of your members, then your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. Now, partly what he's doing is he's going upward, right? He was doing a lot of inward, outward stuff. And now he's, he's like, okay, we got these. Uh, he's convinced his hearers that they're all sinners. And then he, he, he brings that before the face of a holy God. And he sees we're in really big trouble. That sin is separating us from a holy God. We may have thought, oh, I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. I'm good. Me and God are good. He's like, you're not good. That sin separates you from a holy God. And this is a revisiting just in a a more um, extensive way of what he said earlier about anger when he said that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And anyone who calls them a fool is uh, worthy of hell. And so this, this, is a, this is a serious moment in, in the sermon. And as you're listening to this, uh, again, his original hearers, they must have been thinking, what could solve this problem? Like, if, if that is what is going to separate me from a holy God for eternity, I have no hope, right? And it made me think of um, the 16th Uh, century evangelist George Whitfield, who traveled all over the UK and traveled all over uh, the US preaching and uh, he's a really powerful preacher and he was asked one day you know about the the secret of his powerful preaching and he says first I get them damned and then I get them saved I think there's something similar going on here in Jesus' preaching he's getting everyone damned so that they know their need for salvation. And he is especially going after the religious people. Because the religious people are coming in and they're like, haven't murdered, check. Haven't committed adultery, check. I'm good. I go to church, you know, whatever. And Jesus is like, like, a, like a surgeon with a scalpel, man. He goes into the interior of the heart and he reveals sin. And then everyone in the room is like, okay. I need salvation. I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven for my sin that separates me from a holy God. And so let these examples convince you. If, if you thought, oh, I'm pretty good. This is how I grew up, honestly. I, I, I attended church. I was a pretty good kid, and I, I could look at my friends, and I could convince myself, oh, I'm better than my friends. I mean, I'm good. But inward, I was full of anger and lust, and I was trying my best to hide it from everybody. And it wasn't until I realized that sin actually separated me from God, and I needed a Savior to forgive me and bring me back in relationship. And so let that convince you your need for Christ and His salvation. Also, let it remind you of your ongoing fallenness, right? Like it's, it's good for us every once in a while to smell the depravity and go, I, I am more transformed than I was when I first came to Christ, but there's still a lot in there that needs transformation. And that's not to condemn us. We're not to live under con- condemnation or shame or guilt, but, but it's to keep us going to God for grace, for transformation. Because these are his holy standards, These are his holy standards. 
the inward holiness, the outward holiness. And again, we're not trying to become inwardly holy so that we can earn our way. We know we can't do that. But it, it is a vision of being fully human by God's grace. And he's inviting us into this inward and outward transformation. He then <laughs> talks about divorce. And I think in part he does this because he wants to deal with a religious loophole that especially the men in their culture were using basically to be adulterers. Um, men could divorce their wives for any and every reason in the first century, in, in first century Judaism. And women could not divorce their husbands, but men could divorce their wives. And they didn't really have to have a reason. They could just offer a, like a, a piece of paperwork and they could just turn them loose. And in that time, um, this put their wives in a really desperate situation because they could not really go out and get a job. Um, they could go, maybe go back to their original home if the original home would take them, but it's an honor-shame culture, so it's possible they wouldn't because they were ashamed now. And so a lot of times she'd be, end up on the street begging as a prostitute, so it was a dire, dire situation, a very unjust situation. And it was be, being perpetrated by the religious leaders of the day. And so he gets through this uh, discussion about anger, murder, anger, uh, adultery, and lust. And then I think he goes after this divorce thing for this reason, in terms of that context, to make sure he, he closes the loophole. And uh, he does it. Pretty, pretty well here. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now again, he's going after his male hearers when he does this. Um, again, they had convinced themselves that they could do this kind of no-fault divorce, right? Get a certificate of divorce. And they had come, come up with this from a passage in Deuteronomy, from Moses, and they had figured, you know, come up with this kind of justification, and this loophole that they could get out of uh, their marriage anytime they wanted. And Jesus lets them know that uh, that is not the case. Uh, he does get a get-out-free card, and that get-out-free card is marital unfaithfulness. And so this, this, is, this is a mercy from Jesus um, because the pain of marital unfaithfulness is, is so crushing. And so this, this is Jesus saying, if that, if that happens, you can get out. You can get out. Um, notice that he says if these guys that are just like offering up certificates of divorce um, to their wives, he's saying, you're making, you, guy, are making her an adulteress. He, he's putting the weight of that situation on the guy who is giving the certificate of divorce. So again, this is, he is pushing on some cultural things in that moment. Again, it had to be uh, really, really earth-shaking 
Um, now, he's definitely dealing with the loophole um, that, that the men are using basically to commit adultery, right? And uh, it also speaks of God's standard in general regarding marriage and divorce. Um, divorce is something that is always crushing. It is crushing. Um, and from, from a biblical understanding, the, the reason that you can do that, get, get out of a marriage, is adultery, and I would add abuse and abandonment. All three of those are basically breaking the marriage covenant. And when you experience adultery, abuse, abandonment, it, it, it's a get-out-free card. Now, it doesn't have to be a get-out-free card. I've seen marriages where adultery uh, had, had occurred and people forgave and they moved back toward each other and it, it can happen. So it's not a, you must divorce if there's adultery. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if there is, if there is adultery, um, he understands the pain of that and the brokenness of that covenant and allows for divorce. Now, why is Jesus so worked up about this? Well, in part because marriage communicates God's relationship with his people. It communicates God's relationship with his people. Um, that God moving toward his people, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is depicted as a husband moving toward a wife in covenant with each other. And the permanence of that covenant, the intimacy of that covenant, uh, the uniqueness of that relationship, like no other, communicates the relationship between Christ and a church. And so marriage, given to Adam and Eve in the garden, ultimately is a picture of Christ in the church, and it's a gospel-preaching device. So marriage, my, you know, my marriage of 31 years, in all of its imperfections, <laughs> is a preaching device, preaching the gospel to people, saying this, this covenant thing that I have with Melanie is actually showing the covenant that Christ has with his church. And the plan at our house is, it's going to be till death do us part. And that's going to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? This, is, this is the pattern. This is the pattern. Um, and so, what do you do with that? Well, depends on where you are in life. So if you're single, it needs to sober you up a little bit. Not, not a little bit, a lot. You need to date the kind of people that are wanting to enter into that kind of covenant, that have the kind of Christ-like character and faith that is going to be required for you to stay married until death do you part. So I want you to hear that, those of you that are single, which is most of you in the room. Uh, for those who are married, there's a few of us married in here, um, stay married. Stay married. <laughs> um, this is such a, a beautiful uh, preaching of the goodness of the gospel as, as we uh, stay married. And it's, it's hard. You put two sinners in a relationship together for decades, it's going to be some struggles. <laughs> and um, it's, it's something that is 
uh, so beautiful when the gospel works itself out in that relationship over years and years and years and years. And that relationship grows in intimacy, in friendship, um, and even produces children. And it's just this beautiful gospel uh, preaching device. Now, what about the divorced, right? Uh, One is that divorced people aren't second-class citizens in the Christian world. I mean, as we look at this passage, everyone is seeing themselves under sin. And I I really think that's partly what Jesus is accomplishing, is making sure we all know our sin and our need uh, for Savior. As As a pastor, what I've come to learn about divorce is that every divorce is different. Every divorce is different. And there's some who have come to me and said, I, I want to divorce my spouse. And I'm like, you're crazy. You're selfish. You need to repent. You need to stay married. And I'm giving it to them. You know, in Christian love, of course. Right? <laughs> but there's others I've helped pack the boxes and move out of the house. Because of abuse, adultery, abandonment. And marriage, divorce, they're, they're very unique because they require two people. And so each of these situations is very different and it's very complicated. But it's not a reason to go soft on the biblical pattern. And this is what we see Jesus. He, he is doubling down on the biblical pattern. One man, one woman, one lifetime, till death do them part. Right? And he, t- he speaks more of it in Matthew 19. There's a longer conversation he has with the Pharisees. So if you want to see Jesus talk more about it, um, you, can, you can see it, it there. So, said a lot of stuff. Here's a little summary. Uh, this is a call to repentance right? from lustful, dehumanization of other people and a movement toward a covenantal sexual expression which actually rehumanizes all of our relationships. It's interesting when, when we take marriage seriously and sex is put inside its proper boundaries, all of the relationships are rehumanized. And so it's, it, it's really remarkable. If, if adultery is not on the table, if premarital sex is not on the table, if these, these other things outside of marital covenant sexual union are not on the table, um, it rehumanizes relationships. Because now relationships aren't objectified. They're, they're not sexualized. And again, as I say these things, I, I know this is so different than the world out there. But as far as I can tell, the world out there is not doing all that great. There's not a lot of human flourishing going on, especially in the the sexual department. And so Jesus is giving us a a new set of, um, or a a republished version of um, these commandments, both inward, outward, that really do contribute to human flourishing. Again, these things are are being taught by Jesus not to condemn us or to crush us, but to convince us of our need for salvation. 
Because he's the only one who both inwardly and outwardly and upwardly was perfectly 100% righteous. And he died in the place of us who are not 100% righteous. Both to forgive us of our unrighteousness, but also to transform us toward the righteousness of God. We're reminded of this every time we come to this table. That on the night in which Jesus was betrayed by angry and dismissive human beings, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a profound moment where everything around him is not, it is anything but reconciliation. His disciples, the religious leaders, the Roman Empire, I mean, all of it is just coming in at him. And what does he do? He moves toward human beings in reconciliation, says, this is my body, broken for you, and seeks to reconcile with them. It's amazing. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He's moving toward them with a new covenant, a relationship that is so secure and so loving and so intimate and being purchased by his blood being shed on the cross. Again, he is exhibiting his spousal love for his church. And we're reminded of that every time we hear uh, this new covenant language, the spousal love of Jesus for us, his church. And so as we take this bread, as we take this cup, we're reminded of both the reconciliation we've been given and the spousal love that we've been given in this new covenant. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we want to welcome you to celebrate that with us. Uh, If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, uh, we hope that you'll take Christ this morning by faith and move toward him because he has already moved toward you in reconciliation uh, and in covenantal love. And so to receive that by faith this morning to begin your relationship as a Christian, that'd be a great morning to do that this morning. Um, But again, if not yet a Christian, I want to encourage you to stay in your seat and uh, pray, think about what you're hearing, and hopefully reach out to talk more about Uh, what you heard this morning. So let me pray, and then um, you can come, come down front when you're ready to take the bread and the cup. God, we give you thanks for this bread and cup and what it symbolizes for us, for this costly reconciliation that you have provided for us through your death on the cross, for this beautiful loving covenant that you've made with your people uh, again, at great cost to yourself. And Father, we, we come to you confessing <laughs> that uh, we don't measure up uh, inwardly, outwardly, um, but are so grateful for the forgiveness that you give us and also the transforming grace that you give us to be changed. And I, I give you thanks for the transformation that has occurred in, in many in this room and, and will occur uh, in an even greater way this week, and the next, and the next, and the next. And so, Lord, help us uh, to really see the teaching that we've just looked at uh, through the lens of the gospel and uh, what it means for us as your reconciled covenant people.
people. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.